Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome to episode 131 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you're having a wonderful summer. I feel since we talked last, things has been tough for me. And I was so excited about all this wonderful things I wanted to do during the summer. And right after I did this interview, I had this, I got this horrible news about passing of one of my long-term clients to to an accident, nothing related to mental health, nothing related to what we were working on. It's just like something totally unexpected happened. And since then, I've been very struggling, really struggling with really tough emotions. And I, I never lost a client. I've been so lucky. And I felt like someone pressed a dagger in my heart when I heard the news. And since then, I've been trying to cope with with my own therapy, with all the self-care things I'm doing. (laughs) My husband calls me Lance Armstrong because I'm just going for hours of bike rides and things of that nature. The reason I'm telling you is in past three years, I haven't missed one episode and I released this episode on a weekly basis. But since I'm struggling, I might take a pause. I haven't decided whether I would do it or not, but I wanted to be honest and transparent with you guys in case if if I don't release the episode, that, that would be the reason. Saying that though, given that I have tons of episodes that I already recorded in the, in the archive. So I will let you know for sure if if I decide to take a pause, because I think it's important at times to pause and take care of yourself. And I encourage you to do that in life too. As far as the episode today, actually, I I am very excited about this conversation that I had with two wonderful researchers around sexual diversity. And we talked about their research, their how they define sexual orientation. We talked about how does sexual orientation change across the lifespan? This is one of those questions that I get all the time. And it's wonderful to have two great researchers who've done actual research work with this population on this show. Uh, first is Dr. Jess Matzek. Dr. Jess L. Matzek, PhD, is an assistant professor of psychology and women's gender and sexuality studies at the Pennsylvania State University. She received her PhD in psychology and women's studies at the University of Michigan. Since 2010, she has published more than 25 scientific papers and books, chapters, in which she examines diversity and the psychological experience of adults with sexually stigmatized identity. She received tons of accolades and she does wonderful work in her lab. I leave a link to her research page and to her lab in the show notes. The second person we have is Anna Saloma MS. Anna Saloma MS is in her final year as a doctoral candidate at the Pennsylvania State University in the Department of Psychology. Her area of focus is clinical psychology. 
The overarching goal of her research is to translate mapping the complexity of sexuality to the improvement of sexual minority health. She has done tons of different wonderful work in this area. And in 2019, she received the Pennsylvania Psychological Foundation's Student Multicultural Award. She also received the 2008 an award uh, from the Bisexual Issues Committee Foundation by APA Division 44. I leave a link to her full bio and also her research studies in the show notes. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview and here is my conversation with Jess and Anna. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Jess Matzik and Miss Anna Saloma on our show today. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I am so excited to have you on the show because of the extensive research you guys have done in these areas and in the area of sexuality, especially around sexual orientation. I feel we don't uh, have enough good research and I'm glad that you guys and your lab is doing this wonderful work. Well, thank you. And, and we're definitely happy to have it kind of promoted by you and to your listeners as well. Great, great. So I, I'm kind of curious to know that how did you get interested in this area of research? Sure. So I can go first here. I was always interested in social inequalities and prejudice and, and generally why people feel negatively about people who are different from them. And then so as an aspiring social psychologist, I knew that prejudice was going to be an area of inquiry for me. And then by extension, the focus on sexuality and in particular LGBTQT issues came when I realized really how underrepresented these topics were in the study of psychology. I can remember being a young student who identifies within the LGBTQ acronym, and I would get so excited to see research that was done that, you know, actually related to my lives and to my friends' lives. And so as I started my career in academia and research, it's been a priority for me to, to make their experiences represented in the science. And I think everyone deserves to have scientific knowledge conducted about their lives and that, you know, to get material that relates to you. On a final note here, I'm, I'm really fortunate that when I came into doing this work, there were already others who had paved the way. So people were studying same-sex relationships, same-sex parents and families, discrimination. So, so many of the topics that I choose to study in my research lab at Penn State aren't nearly as taboo of topics as they used to be 30 years ago. So I, I'm giving a head nod here to, to the many researchers who've come before me in this topic. And I'll echo a lot of what Jess said, but for me, I've been drawn to clinical psychology after spending about two years in a clinical psych lab during undergrad. However, there our focus was emotion, and I was really interested in the topic of emotion. I continued that work in grad school, but I found that even though it was interesting to me, I wasn't very passionate about it. And it's very hard to get through six years of grad school without having passion. Mm -hmm. So I was really fortunate and really excited when in my third year, Jess joined the faculty here at Penn State and I was able to start working with her on LGBTQ research. Um, I find it really gratifying to see how applicable the research I do is to the clients that I work with. And moving forward, I want to keep moving towards integrating my research with LGBTQ participants with my practice. 
And I get, I'm so grateful that you guys are doing this research because I went to a graduate program that was kind of one of the highlights that was kind of like promoting equality and it's well known for research on LGBTQ communities. And I felt at least the information I got in clinical classes was like show up non-judgmental. But I feel yeah. we certainly need more than that, right? So you don't need a, someone telling you just being non-judgmental, which is a great, great start. But I think, as you said, everyone deserves to have a research that's kind of targeted to their experiences. And clinicians, like as a graduate students, learning how to address some of the challenges that people are experiencing because of being exposed to minority stress. Right. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I think part of what we see changing at, at universities and psychology departments is that it's actually our, our graduate students who are really bringing these issues to the table and saying, we want more training in LGBTQT issues, or we want to, you know, revisit the way that we're asking sexuality, asking about sexuality and asking about gender. Anna is one of those students here at Penn State who I think has really helped to push the needle and I'm sure that that uh, effect is happening elsewhere, too, that hopefully we're seeing more diversity training within the clinical realm. That would be fantastic. Definitely an area that's needed again in, in California, which is graduate school, I would imagine, are more, at least the one I went, was more diverse. I feel we could have done a better job with kind of talking about these things and kind of getting more training about specific challenges that people have. But I wanted to understand, like, since this is the heart of your research around sexual diversity, how do you guys define sexual orientation? Good question. So, Sexual orientation is very multifaceted. Um, it contains several components and aspects of ourselves, and aspects of ourselves, and and our understanding as scientists and clinicians of sexual orientation has changed over time. Originally, you know, at the most basic level, we thought of it as being who you're sexually attracted to: women, men, or maybe both. But now we know that sexual orientation is much more complex than that. It can be about who you're sexually or, uh, attracted to, of course, but also who you're romantically attracted to, or maybe who you desire, or who you fantasize about, who, who you engage in sexual behaviors with, or maybe the identity labels that you choose to use to describe your sexual orientation. So for some people, all of these facets of sexuality, you know, might be targeted towards one gender. For others, it, it could be more complex, right? So we could have our desires and fantasies be about one gender, and maybe we're behaving sexually with another gender. It doesn't mean that either of these configurations are right or wrong. It just simply shows something we say in our lab all the time, sexuality is complex. Um, and on that note, we've seen that even the identity labels that people use to describe their sexual orientation, like heterosexual, lesbian, gay, bisexual, that list is ever expanding. It's not nearly as simple as we, we, we might think it is, or we might you know, want to create these discrete boxes and categories. Um, I think recent research has found something like more than 26 sexual orientable labels exist now, right? Like there's things like pansexual, asexual. So you know, we, I'm proud of the field of psychology for moving far beyond that really narrow definition we had years ago, thinking about it as just being sexual attraction. But I'll let Anna uh, chime in here too, if, if you can speak to how we're defining sexual orientation right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think the issue of measurement is really important here because, for example, we can get different responses about how people view their sexual orientation if you're asking about attraction 
identity or behavior. So even though 40% of young adults would report that they're attracted to more than one gender, only about 2% would actually identify as bisexual, which means that even if you're a clinician or a researcher, we need to be asking more than one question to understand someone's sexual orientation. And on another note, sexual orientation can contain so many different things, like Jess said, but we're also thinking about it in relationship to gender. And there's actually a new theory in the field of sexuality research that I've been really excited about. It's called sexual configurations theory. And it's really pushed the idea that we need to think critically about what aspects of gender or sex we're talking about. So for example, if someone says that they're attracted to women, what we really want to know is also, do they mean people with vulvas or people who present in a feminine manner? Oh, I love that. I didn't hear about this, this new findings and theories and absolutely makes sense. Yeah, it's a, a great theory called sexual configurations theory, as Anna said, by Sari Van Anders. And it's provided a nuanced take on how we can think through the defining the concept of sexual orientation, gender, sex. So it's definitely something to, to check out if you're further interested. Yes, yes. I also am going to check it out and I leave a link in the show notes. Uh, I'll do some research on it and leave a link in the show notes for our listeners. And also I was reading the, one of the publications that you guys had and you were talking about and the research setting and how to identify if someone is kind of what kind of sexual orientation they are kind of identifying with, what, what, what is going on and how to measure that. And it was interesting that you guys were talking about what people identifying and what at times arousing because I know in lab and again you, you certainly know but for our listeners that there are ways to uh, measure the arousal in the lab uh, so I'm kind of curious is, is that something that you know you guys going based on the self-report or you using the physiological uh, measurements uh, so I would like to know more about that piece yeah we, we've never used the physiological measurements I'm certainly aware that they have proved to be a useful tool in sexuality research that's done on site or done in a research lab. We often rely on self-report and we can do this in a couple of ways. We might ask people, um, give them a list of options as well as an open-ended box and say, which term do you use to identify yourself? You know, so heterosexual, lesbian, queer, bisexual. And of course they can write in anything extra. We, we also sometimes will ask them, how attracted are you to this type of person or how attracted are you to this type of person, men, women, etc. And also some of our research has looked at behaviorally, like who are you having sex with and who have you had sex with previously? And I think, you know, Anna can uh, weigh in here and she's already mentioned this already, but you find different results depending on how you ask about sexual orientation. Right. So some work, work we're actually doing right now shows that it's really important not to just ask people how they identify right now, but also who they're having sex with right now and who they've had sex with in previous years, because that can be a really important factor in actually predicting mental health outcomes. So knowing if, you know, right now, maybe they identify as heterosexual, but in the past they've had same gender partners that's actually a really risky combination. They're not currently having same-sex partners right now. 
Well, that is such an interesting way of kind of gathering more information about this, this kind of like particular experiences that people have. And I think it gives us kind of, it's a good segue to the next question that I have. And I hear a lot from our listeners that what are our sexual orientation change across the lifespan? I was kind of curious to see what do you think about that? Absolutely, it does. And I think that um, at least in the social sciences and in psychology, my, my home, we know that sexuality is something that we call fluid. Uh, it changes across the lifespan, meaning that our attractions, our desires, our behaviors, our identities, it might change and ebb and flow over time. Um, I think we generally understand fluidity to be a possibility in early adolescence or young adulthood, right? Like we think maybe people aren't settled yet or they're exploring and eventually, you know, eventually they'll come to this aha moment of sexuality. But the truth is, is that sexuality isn't fixed. You know, it doesn't have an expiration date of when it suddenly settles. Um, so for some people, their sexuality might be very different in their late 40s than it was in their early 20s. And that's perfectly fine. So as an example of this, you might have a, a heterosexual woman who is, you know, happily married in a monogamous relationship with a man and, you know, 20 years later, maybe she falls in love with a woman. Uh, maybe she sexually desires women. That doesn't necessarily negate her past, right? Like we're, we don't, we can't just assume like, oh, wow, she must have been this closeted person her whole life, you know, or, or she was battling these internal demons. Um, now she's finally her true self. But it doesn't work that way. Uh, we, we want to acknowledge that, you know, people's lives are, are phases to some extent, and your sexuality is going to grow and change with you, just like other aspects of the self does across the lifespan. Well, I think that's such a good point, and it can be very much better kind of we, like way of looking at people's kind of like different experiences, different points of life. Because, for example, at times I see couples that are coming in, and one of the partner is kind of now want to be with same sex partner. Like I'm talking about the heterosexual couples, and the other partner. Part of the feeling of betrayal is that he or she feels. Like, okay, all those years that we had this great sex and relationship, it meant nothing. It was mm -hmm. all an illusion. But from what I'm hearing is a possibility that like, that was meaningful and that was authentic. But then the person is another kind of like junction of life with different desires and different seeking different experiences. Yeah, I really like the word you've used. Of, you know, it, it can still be authentic. It doesn't mean that one's past is any less authentic or real than one's present. Are present. I, I think that, you know, it's healthy for us to acknowledge and kind of get the word out uh, that sexuality is just not going to be fixed and stable throughout the lifespan for everybody. Also, I want us to talk about uh, some of the dynamics that you find in your research within the LGBTQ communities, because I, I know that you guys did extensive research about their experiences and their relationships and some of the inter within the community challenges that they have. Can you share some of those findings with us? Sure. So, um, you know, we sometimes forget that LGBTQT people are, they're not a singular group or a singular community. They're just as complex and diverse as any other group of people, right? There's different races represented. There's different social classes. There's different gender identities and different sexual orientation identities that are represented. So I, I want to start first kind of acknowledging that, like acknowledging the complexity of these, these communities. So 
it becomes unclear then whether or not everybody has the same access to these communities as being safe havens. So certainly for some people, this is a tremendous source of support and community. But for others, we find in our research that they are actually met with prejudice in, in these spaces. So bisexual people, for example, you know, we know that bisexual people are more likely to experience social isolation, loneliness, social exclusion, uh, and this extends into later adulthood too, like so older age. And one of the reasons might be is that they, they are excluded or, or met with prejudice or stigma or misunderstanding with heterosexual people. And then likewise, they're excluded or met with prejudice or misunderstanding with lesbian and gay people. So they, they really fall in between these two groups that, you know, they might not feel welcome and included in those spaces. Given it's Pride Month, for instance, there's been a lot of Pride festivities going on, and, and those are wonderful and great spaces for some people. But I've also seen on um, my social media, several people come forward and say, I, I went to a Pride parade event today, and something really terrible happened. You know, I'm, I'm a bisexual woman, I went with my male partner, and someone came up, came, came up to us and said, you don't belong here. Like, what, what are you doing here? No. This, you know, you're, you're straight. So I think that these, these things are happening to bisexuals that are really jeopardizing their, their health and connection to other people. So some of the work that's going on in my lab, I have several grad students, Anna being one, and also Mary Crook, Lindsay Palmer, and Flora Oswald, all of whom are doing projects on figuring out like why bisexual prejudice happens and what we can do about it. Like, can we intervene or can we change people's minds about bisexuality? Um, something that we find often in the lab is that people don't think, uh, and this is this is with lesbian and gay participants, they might not see bisexuality as a stable or as an authentic way of identifying. So they might think bisexuality is really just a phase, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. you're sitting on a fence, you're eventually going to be gay or lesbian, or you're eventually going to be straight, but being bisexual forever isn't an option. Um, so we, we found this in a recent paper of mine, where gay men and lesbian women rated bisexual women and men. And what we concluded from this is that they saw bisexual people as really being the authentic way that they, they perceive bisexual people is that they're attracted to men. So bisexual men are going to be seen as, you know, they're actually gay men. They're attracted to men. Bisexual women attracted to men, you know, are seen as kind of these secretly straight women. These are, are, of course, are stereotypes here, but they are active in the LGBT community. And then finally, I would just point out with the dynamics that are in these queer communities that trans people and people of color have also have had a long history of exclusion within LGBTQT communities, especially in the U.S. And, you know, I think that we, we should be thinking about LGBTQ communities as a marginalized group, but that also has its own people on the margins, too, within those groups. Thank you for kind of sharing this knowledge and information with us. And I, I certainly hear the, this negative perspective that people have around, specifically around bisexual men and women. And as you mentioned, that oftentimes the mentality is like the man is closeted gay and the woman is just adventurous sexually. And right. people are not acknowledging their sexual orientation. Being bisexual is orientation. It's not being adventurous sexually or kind of hitting your sexual, true sexual orientation. And I'm so grateful for 
for people like you that they do research that will help with kind of increasing awareness around these issues. Because I feel like there is, again, my my experience as a clinician that within the LGBTQ community is more uh, support around like lesbian gays, but I think as bisexual, at least my clients, is the support is not as uh, readily available as mm-hmm. as one would hope. So I think with more research, that's something that I, we can definitely help people to have more understanding of their people experiences. And the other thing that you mentioned that was fantastic is sometimes people think the entire group of LGBTQ community having one kind of experience. Right. And not acknowledging the differences and how within each group there are so many factors playing into how, how they're coping with the minority stress, how they're kind of interacting with other people. And as, again, as you said, that part of it is like, what's your race? So I would imagine a person of color who identifies as someone in LGBTQ community might have a different experience than someone who's a Caucasian coming from a higher SES places. Absolutely. And I think we can even look to outside of the research world, um, when we look at you know, the, the social issue initiatives or activism surrounding LGBTQT rights and who kind of has historically been able to set the agenda, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, let's make the main issue seem sex marriage or um, adoption rights or whatever it is. Usually when we, when we start to look at, like, who are the leaders of the organizations, um, they tend to be white gay men. And um, while that might be okay, it also sometimes might not capture you know, what more marginalized people would really like to work on, right? Like, so maybe Mm -hmm. um, gender identity needs to be at the forefront of conversations or LGBTQT homelessness or incarceration. So I'm, I think that this is something that community communities have have started to grapple with, you know, given that its past has kind of always been like this is really starting to diversify leadership and uh, make sure everybody has a voice in kind of what the, the agendas are going to be. Exactly. And also, I want to make sure that it's, I'm, I'm addressing one of the other things that I often hear that my colleagues and clinicians are struggling with. Again, since many of the clinicians didn't have an extensive kind of training and kind of working with people with specific challenges within the community of like who have like sexual, like different sexual they belong to a minority group when it comes to sexual orientation. Uh, one of the challenges is that people, they don't know how to identify sexual identity. What can, how can they ask about these questions? How can support, how they can support the clients when it comes to these issues? I recently did this poll for my listeners and surprisingly 60% of them are clinicians. <laughs> oh, wow. So I'm, I'm so grateful for you guys to be in this show. So you can tell us what are some of the best practices when it comes to identifying sexual identity, uh, specifically as it relates to clinicians? I think that's a great question, although I'll warn you, I don't have a simple answer. Um, So my current research is actually focused on trying to compare different combinations of questions in their ability to best predict mental health outcomes, which is something clinicians, I think, really want to know. However, that's still underway. For now, One easy thing that clinicians can do is add several questions about sexuality and gender to their intake questionnaires. 
So this could include questions about not just current identity, but also any previous ways that they've identified their sexual orientation, things like the gender of their romantic and sexual partners, and people that they've been attracted to across their lifetime. Another note is that for gender, it's important to make sure we're not just putting male and female as the only options that are listed. And I think that by even just attempting to capture some of those things, these approaches can really set the stage for clients coming into you know, their first therapy session to know that their therapist is aware of and comfortable talking about sexual and gender complexity. And it can also scaffold clients to start thinking about their identities in a more nuanced manner for the first time, because maybe they've never been exposed to thinking about their sexuality as more than just a single category. For example, so at the clinic I work at, our intake form used to have just a single item that asked about sexual orientation with only four options and no write-in option, which really wasn't sufficient. And as I was doing intakes, I would see clients who would circle heterosexual, but then would write out a really lengthy explanation on the side because heterosexual really felt incomplete. Or maybe in other cases, they would circle heterosexual and not say anything else unless I had asked follow-up questions during the intake process, even though issues related to same-gender attraction or previous sexual partners that were of the same gender wouldn't have come up, even though it was very important to the person's presentation. And beyond just the intake process, I think that identifying parts of sexual identity is an ongoing process, even for clients who may have started therapy with a very clear idea of the label they use. So I've actually had several clients where a big part of our work was starting with psychoeducation about all the possible ways that their sexual orientation could vary, and then moving towards exploring their current as well as past attractions and experiences. For example, I had a client who started therapy who identified as heterosexual, but ultimately found that label very difficult to integrate with their history of having had same gender partners in the past. So when we talked about it, they were very sure that the word bisexual didn't correctly describe them, and they were very frustrated because they didn't think that any word ever could. Um, It was only after they were able to start thinking through the differences between romantic and sexual attraction or attraction to primary versus secondary sexual characteristics, so breasts versus vulva, um, and even their own gender identity, did they start to really think, okay, it's okay that I'm never going to find a single word to define my sexual orientation. And that's great because I've just learned so much about myself and what I want by thinking that through. As a resource, I really love use of diagrams that chart out possible dimensions of sexuality and sexual orientation. Because even if a client has a solid idea of what their sexual identity is, seeing all those possibilities laid out perhaps for the first time makes them realize how much more there is to think through. For that, I would definitely recommend using the gender-bred person diagram as an easy way to start. And then for more depth, another resource I love is a zine about that sexual configurations theory I mentioned earlier. It was actually made by the researcher, Sari Van Anders. And the zine has been a great resource for my clients because it takes a pretty complex theory that us as researchers use, and then lays it out piece by piece in a really approachable way for any clients to engage with. Wow, these are great recommendations. And what I love about it is that they are tangible and concrete. 
right? Something that all clinicians, if they are interested, they can implement in their practice. And kind of revisiting the intake paperwork can be very helpful to make sure that you are opening the dialogue around the things with your clients, with kind of allowing them to truly talk about who they are and also at times kind of give them permission to kind of explore these things versus kind of having this two box of male, female, kind of heterosexual or homosexual kind of boxes that people have. So I think these are great recommendations. And again, it's wonderful that you are focusing on that because I feel as clinicians, we see a lot of clients and many, at least many of my clients, they identify they're in a same-sex relationship and you you can be an agent of change and helping them with these things if you are kind of educating yourself and allowing them to kind of uh, explore and express their true sexual identity. I noticed that we are toward the end of our time. I want to know if our listeners wanted to know more about your research, your lab, all the great works that you guys are doing, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? Um, so people are, are, are welcome to email me directly at jmatsik at psu.edu if you have any follow-up questions. Um, otherwise, I'd be happy to send you my my lab website where we list all of our papers and projects that are going on, um, which also has my contact info there as well. Okay, fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This certainly was very useful conversation for me, and I'm sure many of our listeners found it very helpful. Thank you for your time, and we're looking forward to hear about your future research. Great. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. It was great. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jess and Anna. If you're interested to learn more about their lab and all the wonderful research that they're doing, feel free to check out the uh, lab page and the research studies. The link is in the show notes. Also, if you like this show, please tell a friend about it or put it on your social media so we can reach a broader audience. I love you guys and hopefully I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.